Well, let's take a Bible. Let's open it together. Second Samuel chapter 15. If you didn't bring a Bible, not to worry. We have a copy you can borrow right on the back of the seat in front of you. Going to be on page 226 in our copy or Second Samuel 15 in your copy in the lobby. Hi, guys. Can you all hear me? Okay. Remember, Saturday night, 815. Uh, sorry, y'all are out there. I'll talk loud. Okay. Bless you. Okay. Hey, next spring, CBS is beginning a new game show. The name of this new game show is Survivor. And the winner of the game show gets $1 million in cold cash. Now, let me tell you how the game is played. CBS is going to pick 16 contestants of various ages and genders and races and maroon them on an uninhabited island in Borneo if you get this, for 39 days along with camera crews. And they're going to have to form their own cooperative society. There are six-foot monitor lizards that live on this island, parrots that steal food and all kinds of other nonsense. But here's how the game's played. At the end of each hour-long episode that's filmed, everybody on the island gets together, all 16 people, and they form a tribal council. And at that tribal council, at the end of each episode, they expel one member of the community who then has to leave the island, gets exiled from the island. And this goes on one episode at a time until they get all the way down to two people left on the island, two contestants left. And then, here's the hitch, the 14 people who got thrown off the island, they vote and decide which one of the two people left gets the million dollars. Now, the executive producer, this is for real, I'm telling you the truth. The executive producer, Mark Burnett, said, everything is designed to create tension in the group. <laughs> yeah, you bet. It's really like a human experiment, he said. Contestants will have to make deals, break deals, betray on one another, lie to one another, turn on one another. I thought, shoot, man, you don't need to go to Borneo to get this. Just come to Washington. We're right here, man. 39 days in Washington. You get it all. And by the way, if you'd like to be a contestant, you can go on the Internet, www.cbs.com, and you can sign up as a contestant. We'll all root for you. Now, um, the reason I bring this up is because we're going to look at a version of Survivor played out in the days of David in the ancient Near East. We're going to see some players who were very skilled in these same arts of betrayal and intrigue and political sliminess that you have to be to win this game, Survivor. And we're going to find that in the midst of all of this, there's a wonderful spiritual lesson for you and me in the 20th century. So let's look together. Second Samuel 15, a little bit of background. Remember, David's son Absalom has deposed his father as the king. And, and you remember, this is one of those disciplinary consequences that God promised would happen to David because of his adultery with Bathsheba. David has been forced to flee Jerusalem. He's a running for his life with a few faithful followers. And that's where we pick up the story. So let's pick up verse 30. But David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered and he was barefoot. And all the people with him covered their heads too. And they were weeping as they went. Now, verse 31, David had been told, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. So David prayed, O Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. 
And when David arrived at the summit, there was a fellow there named Hushai who had his robe torn and dust on his head, a way of signifying his identification with David, the grief, the pain, the anguish that he was feeling for his friend. And he wanted to go with David. And David said to him, no, no, don't go with me. If you do, you'll only be a burden. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to return to the city and say to Absalom, I will now be your servant, Absalom. I was your father's servant. Now I'm going to be your servant. And then David says, you can help me by frustrating Ahithophel's advice. Verse 37. So David's friend Hushai went back to Jerusalem just as Absalom was entering the city. Now, who is this guy, Ahithophel, that everybody's so worried about him? Who is this guy? Well, the Bible tells us that Ahithophel, 1 Chronicles 27, had been David's counselor as the king, David's personal advisor, David's chief of staff, David's closest confidant, and that part of where David was today was because of the wonderful wisdom that Ahithophel would constantly give him. Look down in chapter 16, verse 23. Chapter 16, verse 23, it says, Now in those days, the advice that Ahithophel gave was like that of one who inquires of God. This is how both David and Absalom regarded all of Ahithophel's advice. Ahithophel was the undisputed king of advice in Israel. If Ahithophel said it, man, people would go, Oh, 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 Ahithophel said that. Oh, oh, did he do that? This guy was kind of like Ann Landers, Dear Abby, and, and, and James Dobson all rolled into one. You understand what I'm saying? He said it was like, oh. And now this guy, Ahithophel, David's closest advisor, one of his great friends, by the way, the grandfather of Bathsheba, by the way, now this guy turns on David and actually sells him out. In fact, when Absalom, in his power grab, Ahithophel is his primary co-conspirator. Look in chapter 16, verse 20. It says, chapter 16, verse 20, that Absalom, as soon as they arrived in Jerusalem, said to Ahithophel, give me some advice. What should I do? And Ahithophel said, lie with your father's concubines, whom he left to take care of the palace. Then all Israel will hear that you've made yourself a stench in your father's nostrils, and the hands of everyone with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof of the palace, and he lay with his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now, this seems a little grisly to us. But friends, in those days in the ancient Near East, when you wanted to send a message that you had deposed the king, that you had taken over, that you were now the new king in town, what you did is you took those, that king's wives, you took them out, and in broad daylight you had sex with them as a way of, of, of the ultimate act of treason against your predecessor, the ultimate way of delivering the message, I'm now taking over. Ahithophel said, this is what you need to do, Absalom, and Absalom did it. I'm telling you, in the game Survivor, this guy Ahithophel would have been a formidable contestant. Not one guy I'd want to go up against. Now, the rest of chapter 16 tells us that Hushai, David's friend, comes back, ingratiates himself to Absalom. Absalom says, okay, you can be my servant. Now, let's see what happened. Verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 17. No, I'm sorry, chapter 17, verse 1. Okay, chapter 17, verse 1. Here we go. And Ahithophel said to Absalom... Uh, he said, here's what I want to do. 
I want tonight to choose 12,000 men and set out in pursuit of David. And I will attack him while he's weak and he's weary. And I will strike him with terror so that all the people around him return and flee. And then I will strike down only the king. That's the only person I'll kill, Absalom. I'll bring his head back to you and I'll bring all the people back as well. And the death of the man you seek, the king, will mean the return of all the people. They'll all be unharmed. This will all be over. And everybody said, hey, that's a great idea. Now, do we understand what Ahithophel was saying? He says, hey, you got your dad on the run, man. You got this guy. He's reeling emotionally. He's reeling physically. He's in disorder, disarray. He doesn't have any troops. He doesn't have any men. He hasn't had time to reorganize and pull himself together. If you let me take 12,000 men and go right now. I'll get him. I'll catch up to him. I'll run everybody else off and I'll kill him. I'll cut his head off and I'll bring it back to you. And you know what? You don't even need to leave the palace, my friend. You stay right here. You enjoy yourself. You have yourself a glass of water or whatever. And I'll be back with the head of your father. Just let me do it. Wonderful guy. Well, everything seemed good. It's a, you know, and, and, and but look what happened in verse five, chapter 17. But Absalom said, summon Hushai. David's friend, so we can hear what he has to say. And verse 7, Hushai comes in and he says, The advice Ahithophel has given is not good. You know your father and his men. They are fighters, as fierce as a wild bear robbed of her cubs. If you think you're going to go over there and just run all over David like Ahithophel said, you're crazy. And he goes on to say, verse 11, So this is what I advise you, king. Don't you let Ahithophel go out there and get all the glory. Don't you let him go out there and get all the credit. You're the king. You're the big dog. Why should you let him go out there and get all the, the glory from doing this? Here's what you need to do. You need to let all Israel from Dan to Beersheba, as numerous as the sand of the sea, be gathered to you. Yeah, it'll take a couple weeks, but that's all right. And then you need to lead them yourself into battle. Man, you need to ride out at the front of that army with the flags flying and the band playing. And you need to get all the glory. And then you go fall on your father like dew falls on the ground. And you beat him and you take all the glory. Don't you let anybody else have it. See what he was doing? He was appealing to Absalom's ego, Absalom's pride that was all swelled up. And you know what? (laughs) Absalom listens to him. Look at the next verse. The next verse, verse 14. And Absalom and the men of Israel said, The advice of Hushai is better than that of Ahithophel. Now let's stop right there and ask the question. Is that true? Was Hushai's advice really better? Absolutely not. Ahithophel was totally, absolutely right. If they'd have left right then, taken 12,000 men, chased David, David's barefoot. David doesn't even have any weapons. David is completely demoralized. Everybody with him is completely demoralized, weeping as they go up the Mount of Olives. He's got no troops. He's got no organization. Ahithophel was totally right. If they go after him that night, before he has time to regroup, they would have caught him off guard and they would have killed him. Ahithophel was totally right. But what did God do? God answered David's prayer. Remember what David prayed? David said, Lord, take the advice of Ahithophel and turn it into foolishness in Absalom's mind. Cause Absalom to look at that advice and go, that's stupid. Even though it is good advice. Look what the rest of the verse says, verse 14. For the Lord had determined to frustrate the good advice of Ahithophel in order to bring disaster on Absalom. God had turned Absalom's heart 
to take stupid advice, horrible advice, because God was going to bring disaster on this man for what he had done to his father. Now, let's finish it out. Verse 23, chapter 17. And when Ahithophel saw that his advice had not been followed, he saddled his donkey, picked up his marbles, and went home to his house in his hometown. And he put his house in order, and then he hanged himself. So he died and was buried in his father's tomb. You say, Lot, you know, go figure. And if somebody doesn't take your advice, you go home, you hang yourself. I mean, what is this all about? Friends, I don't know. Shoot, if I killed myself every time my wife didn't take my advice, I'd have been dead 25 years ago. So I don't know what's going on with this guy. I have no idea why he killed himself, but he did. And isn't it interesting that God took this man, Ahithophel, who was a very wise man. See, David knew, you, mar- you take Ahithophel and with his wisdom... And his experience, you partner him up with Absalom, and Absalom is going to be virtually unstoppable. That's why David prayed what he did. Frustrate the advice of Ahithophel. Turn it into foolishness. Not only did God do that, God removed Ahithophel right off the scene. Right off the scene. And now Absalom is on his own with a counter-espionage spy giving him advice. And disaster is up ahead for this boy. Did God answer David's prayer? Mm Mm-hmm. Sure did. Now, that's the end of our passage, but it leads us to ask the really important question. You know what this is. So everybody take a deep breath. Ready? <gasps> One, two, three. So Wonderful. Wonderful. You say, Lon, so I, that's the way I feel. So what? What difference does this make to me? I, this has never happened to me. Nobody's ever chased me out of Jerusalem. Well, you know, I, I'm not a king. You know, I come in the house and say, the king is home, and they go, sit down for dinner, man. Shut up. So I cannot relate to this at all. Well, wait a minute now. There's something wonderful here that has lesson for you and me in the 20th century. You know, 1 Chronicles 18.6, listen, says this. And the Lord delivered David wherever he went. The Lord delivered David wherever he went. Regardless of the crisis David got himself in, regardless of the challenge David got himself in, regardless of the trouble David might find himself in, isn't it interesting the Bible says God always seems to step in and take care of David in amazing ways, and we see God doing it for David right again here. Not only does does he cause Absalom to reject good advice, but he causes Absalom to take horrible advice. The result is not only does David survive, but David eventually returns and gets his throne back. Now, how do we explain this uncanny knack that David had to always get God to intervene on his behalf. How do we explain this uncanny ability he had to always land on his feet with God's help? Well, folks, this is an extremely important question because if you and I can figure out how David got God to do this for him, then we can copy his methodology and bring it into the 20th century and get God to do this for us. So how did David do this? Well, the answer is David had mastered a skill. A skill that God loves, that God honors, and that sets God free to intervene on our behalf. And I don't want to tell you what it is. I want to let David tell you. So let's turn to the Psalms. Psalm 20. It's page 391 if you're using our copy of the Bible. Psalm 20. Let's let David tell us what is this incredible skill that he had mastered that caused God to constantly step in and rescue this guy and cause him to land on his feet. Okay, Psalm 20, verse 6. 
Psalm 20, verse 6. Now I know, David says, that the Lord saves, He protects, He intervenes for His anointed. He answers Him from His holy heaven with the saving power of His right hand. David said, hey you guys, I want you guys to know that God loves to intervene in the everyday affairs of life on behalf of people. God is not just the kind of God who sits up there in heaven and keeps Neptune from bumping into Pluto. That's not what God does. God loves to come and get involved in the affairs of people's lives and deliver them, save them, preserve them, protect them. By the way, may I say that if you're here and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, that one of the wonderful things that come when you enter into personal connectedness with Jesus Christ is this intervening ministry of God in our lives. God never promises in the Bible or obligates Himself to intervene in the lives of people that don't know Christ, that haven't trusted Christ, that aren't His children through faith in Christ. But once we become a follower of Jesus Christ, we have God's promise that He wants to intervene, is anxious to intervene in the affairs of our life. And so, my friend, if you're a person who feels like you need more intervention from God in your everyday affairs, and I I don't know who doesn't, I'm telling you the first step to get there You've got to give your life to Jesus Christ. That's where it's got to start. Now, once you do that, that's still not automatic, though. There's still a skill that even as followers of Christ, we've got to master. And here it is in verse 7. David says, here's that skill that causes God to do that. Some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. You say, Lon, I don't see any great skill. Well, what it <laughs> You know, it must be in the Hebrew because it's not in the English. What are you talking about? Well, let me tell you what David says here. David says, you know, when you approach life, there's two different things you can trust. Two different things you can put your confidence in. The first is horses and chariots. And by that, David means human sources of power, human resources, our own wisdom, our own skill, our own cunning, our own ability, our own, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, wisdom and logic. And David said there are many people in our world that that is their confidence as to how they're going to make it through life, how they're going to get things to go their way, how they're going to get delivered in life. But he said the other way to do it is that we trust in the name of the Lord our God. We're trusting God totally for all of our security and all of our deliverance and all of our protection. We are not trusting in our own skill, wisdom, ability, cunning. We're trusting God. Now, two quick caveats. This does not mean that people who are trusting God don't ever use their wisdom, their skill, their abilities. No. It means that you may go into a situation and use your skill, use your wisdom, use your abilities, but your trust is not in them. Your trust is in God. You say, God, if you want to deliver me through my own skill, through my own wisdom, through my own cunning, through my own ability, wonderful. And if you want to deliver me and not use any of that, Wonderful. I don't care. I'll do what I can. But God, my trust is not in what I do. My trust is in you. And the other caveat, folks, is that this doesn't mean that people who are trusting God like this don't ever have trouble. It doesn't mean that they never end up in crisis and they never have things happen to them that are challenging. Not at all. Psalm 34, verse 19. Many are the troubles of the righteous. Many are the troubles of the righteous. But, I love that but, but... The Lord delivers these people out of their trouble. Why? Because they take refuge in Him. Because their confidence in their trouble is not in themselves, it's in God. 
And look at the wonderful promise God gives people who are willing to live this way. Verse 8, he says, They, that is the people who trust in horses and chariots and human sources of power and wisdom, they are brought low, they are brought to their knees and fall, but we, those of us who make our confidence in God, we, what does it say, rise up and stand firm. Now, friends, if there's any one thing that David knew how to do well, it was this. It was how to place his trust, his confidence, not in himself, but in God. For example, let's go back to Goliath. Remember Goliath? Nine feet tall, 250 pounds of armor on. Big boy. Here's what David said when he went out to meet him. And I quote 1 Samuel 17. He said, Goliath, you come against me trusting in your sword and your spear and your javelin. But I come against you, Goliath, trusting in the name of the Lord Almighty, whom you have defied. And you know what, Goliath? Today, I'm going to cut your head off and I'm going to feed you to the birds. Now, when you say that to somebody nine feet tall, your product better work. You understand what I'm saying? And it did. But look how David went out there. David didn't go out to trust in his slingshot. David didn't go out there trusting his armor. Oh, by the way, he didn't have any armor on. He didn't go out there trusting his sword. By the way, he didn't have a sword. He used Goliath's sword to cut Goliath's head off. He didn't go out there trusting his military training and background. He didn't have any military training and background. He said, you can come with me uh, with every human-based source of wisdom and power and training and armor you got, Goliath. I come against you in the name of God and you watch who wins. You're going to be bird feed. And he was. And then, how about Saul? Remember when Saul chased David around in the wilderness for all those years? David had the chance to kill Saul when Saul was fast asleep one time. And what did David say? He said this, 1 Samuel 26, As surely as the Lord lives, the Lord Himself will deal with Saul. Either Saul's time will come and he'll die a natural death or he'll go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. The Lord will avenge me for everything Saul has done, but I am not lifting a finger to hurt that man. And we all know what happened. It wasn't long after that. Saul went into battle, got killed. David ascended to the throne with clean hands, never touched the man. God took care of him. And now we find ourselves with David right back in another one of these situations in 2 Samuel 15. With Ahithophel turning on him, selling him out, helping his rival, his son Absalom. And how does David handle this? What does he do? He prays and says, Oh God, you handle Ahithophel. You turn his wisdom into foolishness. I don't know how you're going to do it, Lord, but you know with Ahithophel's wisdom, uh, Absalom is going to be virtually unstoppable. So God, I'm trusting you. Turn Absalom's heart in some way. Work in Absalom's heart some way so that the good advice Ahithophel gives him is going to look stupid and foolish to him and he's not going to take it. See, David knew the Bible. Proverbs 21, verse 1. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. And the Lord turns the king's heart wherever he wants it to go to accomplish his purposes. And so David said, I know you can do this, God. You take the heart of Absalom and you turn it. So all the good advice he gets, he'll ignore and he'll take all the bad advice he gets. I'm trusting you, God. My only hope is you, God. I'm not trusting Hushai's ability to go back there and trick Absalom. I'm trusting your ability to change that man's heart and turn it to stupidity. Now, You say, Lon, that's wonderful. I understand exactly what you're saying. But you know what, Lon? That's Bible stuff. 
You understand? That's Bible stuff. I mean, it's wonderful the people in the Bible live that way and God did all those great things for them. But this is Microsoft world. You understand what I'm saying? This is AOL world we live in today. God doesn't do that kind of stuff in our world today. He did it for Bible people, but not in the Microsoft AOL world of the 20th century. Well, my response to that is not true, not true, not true. Pip, 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 pip on you if you believe that. And if you really believe that, no wonder you're not seeing God do anything in your life. That's the problem. Friends, Romans 15, verse 4, listen, says everything that is written in the Bible is written for our learning, is written to teach us. What God wrote in the Bible, He wrote so that we could look and see how these men and women brought God's power to bear on their lives so that we could do it in the very same way in the 20th century. David's the same as you and me. God hasn't changed. And if David was able to use certain skills to bring the power of God to bear on his life, if you and I will go into our everyday lives using that same operating system David used, we will see God do for us the same wonderful kinds of things that He did for David. That's the premise I'm operating on. And I know it works. As many of you know, Brenda and I have been looking for a house for the last 16 months. Uh, we sold our house. We've been looking for one, renting back. And particularly for the needs of my, of my little girl, who's severely retarded, as you know, severely handicapped. And we needed a house that would really work for her long term. And so we've been looking. First we thought, okay, we'll move to a different area and buy a house, maybe out in Great Falls or something. We didn't really like doing that. So then we said, no, we need to stay in the same high school district for my son. So let's look around where we are. Maybe we'll find a piece of land and we'll build a house. Well, we couldn't find a piece of land. Then we said, well, maybe we'll find a house and we'll try to just, you know, redo the house we find. Well, not just every house will work. So it's been 16 months. And we, it's, I tell you, it's been frustrating. And so um, I was at a, um, a, our small group meeting back in January, early February, and we were praying about our house, and one of the ladies in our small group said, well, why don't you get out? Uh, we had identified a neighborhood where we really wanted to live. It had nice flat streets. It was a cul-de-sac. I mean, it was just perfect for our daughter, just around the corner from where we live now. Same high school, everything. And, but there's only about 30 or 40 houses in this neighborhood. And they don't turn over very often. As a matter of fact, they don't go on the market hardly at all. Most people who live there are elderly and they sell them to their children. They never even get to the market. When they do, it's a bidding war, which we can't win. And so we were at that small group, we were talking about this, and a lady said, why don't you go around and knock on people's doors in the neighborhood and ask them to sell you their house? I said, well, I don't know. She said, well, that's what I did. I, that's how we got our house. I did that. I said, really? Oh, yeah. I said, all right, well, it's worth thinking about. I went home, thought about it, decided what the heck. So I sat down, wrote up a little thing about my daughter Jill and her needs and why we needed a house, why this neighborhood worked, put my business card in, made about 30 of them, put them in my overcoat, and in February of, last year, of this year, 1999, I went out one afternoon after church and walked this neighborhood. And before I got out of my car, I sat there in my car, and I said, all right, God, Brenda wouldn't go with me, so I was by myself. <laughs> true. So I'm by myself, and I said, all right, God, I'm going to pray now, okay? And I did, and I said, now, God, you know, Proverbs 21.1, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. You can turn the king's heart wherever you want it to go. And you know what, God? The heart of every single homeowner in this neighborhood is in your hand, and I'm going to ask you, God, to turn the heart of one of these people to me. 
So they want to sell me their house. They don't even know why they want to sell me their house, but they want to sell me their house. And that's my prayer. Amen. Got out the car. I'm not going to trust my good looks, which is good. I'm not, go- not going to trust my power to convince them. You, God, you turn somebody's heart to me. So I walked that whole neighborhood, banging on doors. People come to the door. Hi there. I'm Lon Solomon. You don't know me, but could- would you sell me your house? Anyway, I came home. Brenda said, how'd it go? I said, well, nobody said, sure, I'll sell you my house. So I said, I don't, not much happened over there. But if people weren't home, I left an envelope in the mailbox and went on. So I got home from front, speaking at Frontline that night, and about 9 o'clock, the phone rings. It's this elderly lady that lives in the neighborhood. She called me up. She goes, hey, I got this letter you left for me in my mailbox. I wasn't home. She said, are you serious about this? She said, because I'm not going to waste my time with you if you're not serious. I felt like saying, ma'am... Do you think I would make a complete fool out of myself walking around doing that if I wasn't serious? But I didn't want to be disrespectful, so I said, yes, ma'am, I'm serious. She said, well, why don't you come over and look in my house? So Brenda and I went over and looked at it, and, and we went and looked at it a couple times, and we did a little negotiating with the lady, and on August 17th, this lady sold us her house. But now the best part, she had to come. Listen to this. She said, you know, she said, I wasn't planning to sell my house. She said, as a matter of fact, I love this house. My husband and I are very happy here. She said, we, we, we're the original owners. We lived here 35 years. We've had six children in this house. We raised four. Two died in this house. She said, though, this house means more to us than you could ever imagine. And, you know, I believe that when we sat and signed the contract, the husband wept through the whole thing. I felt terrible, like I'm stealing this poor man's house or something. He cried through the whole thing. Anyway, she said, but I'll tell you what, she said, this house means so much to me. She said that I decided if and when I ever do sell it, I don't want my house just to be a piece of real estate. I want my house to be a blessing to somebody. I want my house to be cherished and to matter to somebody. And she said, when I got your letter and I began reading about your disabled little girl, she said, I realized what a blessing my house could be to you and to your little girl She said, I'm a Christian. I prayed about it. And she said, and I decided that God was telling me that you were the people I needed to sell to. And this was the time I needed to sell it. And she said, I don't even know where I'm going. I have no clue where we're moving. We've never even looked for a place. We weren't planning to sell our house. She said, but I know I'm supposed to sell my house to you. And this lady sold her house to me. Don't tell me God doesn't intervene in the everyday events of life, friends. Of course he does. And I'm moving in a house to prove it. Now, now, the really sad thing about all of this is that I see followers of Jesus Christ everywhere I go failing to take advantage of God's willingness to intervene on their behalf, wasting God's wonderful offer to step in and do these kinds of things for them. And you know why we do it? We do it because we limit God. We sit around and go, oh, well, you know, God wouldn't be willing to do that. I mean, I'm not going to bother God. God, Well, God wouldn't do that. God's not going to do that. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. i got good news for you. If God doesn't want to do something for you, you got nothing to worry about, He's not going to do it. All right? you got nothing to worry about. But the point is, why don't you let God decide that and not you? Why don't you let God make those choices, not you? Why don't you stop limiting God, stop trusting your own human resources, your own human wisdom, your own human insight, your own skills, and why don't you just set God loose? in your life to do whatever God wants to do. I promise you, friends, God will do stuff that will shock you if you'll just give Him a chance. It's not that He's not willing. 
is that we limit Him. So stop doing that. I love the verse that says, Ephesians 3.20, God is able to do exceedingly, abundantly more than we can ask or even imagine. Hey, I can imagine a lot. God can do more. So what business do I have telling God what He's not interested in doing for me? That's stupid. My role is to say, God, here I am. Somebody on this house wants to sell me their house. I know it. You're going to make that happen. It's just a question of finding out who. Because I know this is what you have for me. And then trust in God. And friends, God will do the same thing for you that He did for David if you'll just give Him a chance. He'll deliver you wherever you go if you'll put your trust in Him. Not horses, not chariots, not your own wisdom, not your own skill, not your own ability, not your own cunning, not your own scheming. God. You try it. Buckle your seatbelt because God will shock you with what He's going to do for you. Father, you know we live in a town where it's all about money and power and wisdom and cunning and deceit. And it's easy for us to get sucked into living that way, depending on our own resources to deliver us and protect us and advance us and take care of us. Lord, I thank You that You've got a better way for us to live, a higher way for us to live. A way that involves depending on You, the living God, the controller of the universe. To step in and to do for us what You did for David. To deliver him wherever he went. In crisis, out of crisis. His trust was in You. And Lord, my prayer is that You would teach us as a result of being here that if we will do the same thing, You will do marvelous things. You will intervene in, in incredible ways for us. It's something You want to do if we'll just give you the chance. So God, forgive us for limiting you the way we do. Forgive us, God, for trusting ourselves so much and leaving you completely out of the equation so that you can't do for us what you want to do. Father, change the way we live our everyday lives because we were here today. Transform us and make us men and women who live like David. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but not me. No, I trust in the Lord my God. Father, may that be true of each one of us as followers of Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.